Woi woi, woi woi, woi woi. Then he then go on the radio again. Yo, if you wanna smoke free weed, go board yourself. You need to go plant a seed. Go board yourself, make your knowledge increase. Go board yourself, go board yourself. Hey, all right. Welcome to episode number 118 of Grow Bud Yourself. We're very excited and we have a great show for you guys today. Uh, We're going to talk a little news. Uh, We have an interview with Caitlin Donahue. She's the author of Weed, Cannabis Culture in the Americas uh, and an expert on uh, South American cannabis culture. So we're going to talk to her about a lot of that. Uh, we've got a grow tip on dealing with caterpillars, some answers to grow questions, and much more all coming at you. Episode 118. Here we go. If you're a grower or you're thinking about starting your first crop, then you need to know about Sweet Leaf plant nutrients. Sweet Leaf has an incredible line of organic fertilizers and, of course, their legacy line that includes organic and some synthetic fertilizers. Check them out at sweetleaf.com. That's S-U-I-T-E-L-E-A-F.com. The code DANKO15 gets you 15% off everything at Sweetleaf. That's 15% off their signature line of nutrients as well as essentials like complete indoor hydroponic grow tent kits and grow lights, plus awesome apparel, backpacks, and much more. If you join our Patreon, you'll get access to additional codes worth 20 and even 25% off. Patreon supporters also receive free Sweetleaf nutrients just for signing up. Sweetleaf provides all the tools necessary for the modern gardener. Check them out at sweetleaf.com and remember the code DANKO15. All right, welcome back. As always, thank you to DJ Jacques and Winstrong uh, for the amazing reggae tune that opens up the show and gets in everybody's heads. Uh, Grow bud yourself, indeed. Uh, Episode 118, here we are. Mike, how you feeling? Well, so far, so good. Nice. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) Uh, We are in quite a heat wave here in New York. Oh, it's Uh, so hot. It's pretty warm. Uh, but not quite as hot as I think people in Phoenix and other places are dealing with, but still, uh, for New York, pretty hot. And, uh, certainly for all the outdoor plants, it's a little extra. Um, so if you got plants outside, uh, you want to keep them cool. If you can bring them in, if you can, uh, you know, take care of them if you can. If you can. Yeah. Super hot. If you can't, you just better hope they're strong enough to deal with, uh, a lot of heat because it's bad, <laughs> you know, yeah. you keep, keep them watered and, uh, you know, keep them happy. They use a lot, a lot of the, they use a lot more water on days like this and, and weeks like this. So, uh, you know, it's only July. So we still have like at least another month of this. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> we complain about the winter and, yeah, then, and then I'll bitch about, about the, the winter. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> But yes, as Dan mentioned, we are in episode 118 of Grow Bud Yourself. And um, as we do each uh, episode, we should probably talk about some cannabis news. Absolutely. Okay. Well, if you insist, let's get started. Um, So in this first story, there appears to be one thing that Democrats and Republicans in Congress can agree on, and that's uh, that the federal government is not very efficient. 
And while that isn't particularly newsworthy, it is interesting that representatives from both sides of the aisle are complaining that the government isn't moving quickly enough to change how cannabis is scheduled. So I'm fairly certain that if you listen to this podcast, you are aware, but here is a very quick explainer on what that means. Okay, in 1970, the U.S. Congress passed the Controlled Substances Act, which was signed into law by President Richard Nixon as the first foray into the modern war on drugs. The CSA lists controlled substances in one of five different schedules, with one having the highest potential for abuse and five the lowest. Schedule 1 narcotics are also considered to have no accepted medical value. And as you either know or can likely guess, marijuana was classified as a Schedule 1 substance alongside heroin and LSD and has remained there ever since. However, with state-specific legalization creeping across the country and increased acceptance of pot's medicinal value, there is growing support to not just reschedule, which would change a cannabis from, say, a Schedule 1 substance to a Schedule 2 or 3 substance, but instead to deschedule marijuana altogether, which would remove it from the CSA and pave the way to federal legalization. Okay, glad we made it through that. So, um, back in October 2022, President of America Joseph Biden called for the Health Department and the Attorney General to re-examine how cannabis is being scheduled uh, in a pot reform statement. So that brings us to this week, when Drug Enforcement Administration Administrator Ann Milgram, which, by the way, is really close to being milligram, which is kind of crazy, but anyway... Um, DEA Administrator Ann Milgram testified before a House Judiciary Committee, and Representatives Matt Gates and Steve Cohen, a Republican and Democrat respectively, jumped all over the head of the DEA, asking about a plan to change how cannabis is scheduled. Naturally, Milgram gave excuses, saying the DEA hasn't been given a specific timeline, and also passed the buck, stating that her agency couldn't do anything until it received the Health Department's recommendation on pot. So far, the DEA has not received any such report. Fortunately, Gates and Cohen were there to give her some shit. Uh, when Gates said, uh, quote, that is unsettling, isn't it? When you don't even have a timeline, it doesn't really make it seem like something's front of mind. And Cohen stated on record that legal treatment of pot is governmental gibberish and that the government has messed this up forever. But finally, Gates told Milgram, we're two years into the Biden administration, and I honestly had hoped that by now we would already have deschedulized marijuana from the Schedule 1 list. And then they both somehow made this all about fentanyl. But while I guess it's a good thing that representatives are following up on this, it seems like that's the end to the story. The governmental agencies drag their feet, politicians score political points, and cannabis remains a Schedule 1 narcotic with a high potential for abuse and no medical value. Yeah, that's just really stupid. Uh, they really need to just take it off the scheduling altogether. I don't see nicotine on a schedule. I don't <laughs> see alcohol on a schedule. And, I, and, and they're both far more harmful. So uh, it shouldn't be schedule two or three or anything else. Uh, that just pharmaceuticalizes cannabis, uh, hands it over uh, to big pharma uh, and keeps it out of the hands of the people where it belongs. And, uh, you know, it just, let it grow you know put it in the dirt and in the sunshine and let it grow and it will figure it all out just take it off the schedule altogether and you know all these agencies and, and politicians basically passing the buck 
on the blame is ridiculous. It just needs to be descheduled uh, and not rescheduled, but descheduled entirely. And that's it. It's simple. Uh, and it, 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 it has to happen sometime in the very near future because we're talking, you know, 30 something medical states and 16 or more rec. I, I don't know the exact number. I just read it. 23. Recently. 23. I mean, it's ridiculous. We need the banking thing figured out and we just need to basically just treat cannabis like tomatoes. Okay. Like it's really not super harmful and it's, it's already out there. Um, we're already doing it and basically it's a waste of anybody's time to regulate tax or even basically create any of these like task forces and commissions and things just put it at the farmer's market and let us smoke in peace <laughs> absolutely uh okay so in other congressional news Chuck Schumer swears that the Senate is making good progress on a marijuana banking bill, saying that the Safe Banking Act has, quote, always been a priority for me. And nope, not doing that story. Just pass something, for God's sakes. Uh, let's talk about something else. Minnesota. Let's talk about Minnesota. Um, Minnesota will uh, make marijuana officially legal uh, starting Tuesday, August 1st, which is very soon. Um, the state's going to kick things off by legalizing possession and cultivation of cannabis while they establish an adult-use market that includes retail sales. Um, the Minnesota legislature passed the legalization law, and it was signed into law by Tim Walls, Governor Tim Walls, back in May. Unfortunately, residents could be waiting a while before buying their first legal weed, as the state estimates that retail sales won't begin until 2025 while lawmakers work out licensing and social equity aspects of the new industry. Until then, uh, those 21 and older can possess up to two ounces of pot, eight grams of concentrates, and 800 milligrams of edibles, or milgrams of edibles, uh, and they can store as much as two pounds of flour at home. Uh, when it comes to cultivation, Minnesotans can grow up to eight plants, but just four flowering at one time. And you must keep your plants hidden at all times, as the law requires pot be grown in an enclosed locked space that's not open to public view, which I don't really understand. Uh, also, the law includes automatic expungements of past cannabis convictions, which is good. That will also start in August and could impact more than 60,000 people. So, yeah, legalization, Minnesota, the 23rd state, along with the District of Columbia, to legalize recreational pot. Yeah, congratulations, Minnesota. Amazing. And uh, welcome to the club. <laughs> you know, it's great news. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very exciting. It just keeps creeping across the country. So that's good stuff. Uh, something to to make the summer heat maybe a little more tolerable. Um, okay, so here's just a little rundown of other stuff that we're not going to go into completely, but it did catch our eye. Um, Mastercard is demanding that its debit cards not be used to buy pot from legal dispensaries, saying that quote the federal government considers cannabis sales illegal, so these purchases are not allowed on our systems. So Mastercard can go ahead and eat a bowl of shit. Uh, a new poll found that 59% of Ohio residents support legalization of both possession and retail sales of pot, which actually, that sounds a little low to me, just 59%, but uh, still a majority. 
Um, a campaign that would place a legalization initiative on the ballot fell nearly 700 signatures short of qualifying, but it will now have a 10-day window to get those required signatures and still put the issue in front of the voters in November. And finally, uh, NBA guy and noted tall person Kevin Durant has said that he personally asked Commissioner Adam Silver to remove marijuana from the sports banned substances list while reeking of marijuana. Uh, Durant told a sports business conference that the commissioner noted that he smelled weed as soon as Durant walked in to speak with him. Now, whether that had any impact is unclear, but the NBA did decide to stop testing and punishing players for using cannabis. The association will even allow players to low-key invest in cannabis companies. So that's news. Excellent. Excellent news. And uh, KD, KD <laughs> needs to get some... Uh... Some some sealed technology for his uh, cannabis. <laughs> yeah, why is he reeking so bad, man? He's, yeah. I like that he's proud of it, though. Yeah, no, it's great. He probably just smoked right before he went in or something like that, you know? I often wonder if, if uh, I mean, not wonder. I'm, I'm almost positive that, that guys are smoking right before games. Definitely some have admitted to that for sure. I mean, even uh, going back to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar uh, and our... Uh, I guess that we've had on the show, Todd McCormick uh, spoke to Kareem years ago and uh, and asked him if he ever played while high. And and uh, Kareem said, if you've ever seen me play, you've seen me play high. <laughs> 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 it's pretty awesome. That's and uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's like 80 percent or so of the NBA estimated uh, consume cannabis and makes sense. I mean, I've smoked with some current and former nba players over the years and uh clearly you know they enjoy it it helps them with recovery from injury and and all kinds of other issues so it makes perfect sense that they should be allowed to smoke uh and i certainly don't think it really affects their games it's it's not performance enhancing i don't think and certainly doesn't damage performance so i don't know i mean i think they should they should be allowed to smoke they're grown people that play a game for our amusement <laughs> <laughs> you know it's a to testing them for drugs is, is ridiculous <laughs> there's this one dude um now i'm not making any kind of uh, uh accusations here but but uh there's this one cat named brandon ingram and this guy just always looks super super stoned to me if you google if you google him <laughs> Uh, let me know if you agree, uh, but I've often wondered if uh, – I don't know how because they're talking about like in the fourth quarter of a game, he looks super stoned. But I don't know how that's possible unless he's like hitting a joint on the bench, which I don't think is is happening. So, uh, but you know, yeah. There's always halftime. There's always halftime, yes. It also seems like the NBA more than other uh, sports uh, has kind of really accepted cannabis. I don't just mean by the uh, association itself, but its players – uh, after retiring, I've, I've entered the. It seems like entered the cannabis industry at a at a higher rate than maybe football players or baseball players. Certainly, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I got to, I had the pleasure of meeting Cliff Roberts, uh, Cliff Robinson. Yeah, uh, who passed away a few years back, but uh, he was a huge advocate advocate for cannabis and uh, a great basketball player. Uh, Portland Trailblazers, <laughs> among other teams that he played for, including actually the Nets before they, they were in, in New York when they were in uh, New Jersey, and uh, told some great stories, play, had played around a golf with him uh, and had a great time smoking and, and uh, hearing uh, some pretty amazing NBA tales. <laughs> 
there's actually a, a pretty terrific photo of the two of you. Maybe uh, you could repost it somewhere on socials <laughs> for this episode, but it's, it's pretty tall. awesome. He's very tall. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I'm very short. <laughs> well, it's just accentuated when you stand by a gentleman who's almost seven feet tall. Agreed. Correct. Definitely. All right. Well, there you go. That's a that's a bit of a look at what's going on in the world of cannabis. But we have a, a very exciting interview coming up. Yes, indeed. We have Caitlin Donahue. Uh, she's the author of Weed, Cannabis Culture in the Americas uh, and an expert on uh, South American cannabis culture, uh, lives in Mexico City uh, and uh, really uh, wrote this book for young adults uh, to understand uh, more about cannabis culture and specifically uh, in South America, which has a very unique history with, you know, the war on drugs and cannabis in particular, but also just really pays the price for our insatiable uh, desire for drugs uh, up north. So uh, very interesting and uh, very interested to speak with her. And why don't we take a break and come back with Caitlin Donahue. Whether you're growing from seed or from clone, Prime Superior's simple, safe, and effective products can take your cultivation program to the next level. Prime Superior offers a two-step process that will benefit any garden. This is possible thanks to Prime Superior's proprietary strain of Bovaria bassiana, which is optimized for plants and sets up a symbiosis that increases terpenes, cannabinoids, and yield. Simply coat your seed to inoculate and aid rapid germination or dip your clone cutting with the world's first biological cloning honey and improve growth the way nature intended. Next, continue maintenance on your crop with foliar or fog applications of Prime Superior's Drench, which will boost your plant's growth and ensure a healthy harvest. Best of all, the Drench will work with already established gardens, so anyone at any stage of growth can achieve a cleaner crop with better yields. I gotta tell you, I use this stuff myself, not just on my cannabis, but on houseplants as well, and everything has greened up. Everything is super healthy, whether it's the seed coating product, the cloning honey, which is incredible. The drench is absolutely great. It comes in a spray bottle, uh, pre-mixed, so it's ready to be sprayed. This stuff is incredible. And I have literally noticed more cannabinoids and more terpenes. So it really is an amazing product. And now's the time to try Prime Superior and the world's first biological cloning honey. Grow Bud Yourself listeners can use the code PS420 for 15% off their entire order at primesuperior.com. So don't hesitate, inoculate, and visit primesuperior.com today to learn more. All right, welcome back. And we have a special guest for you guys this week. Uh, she is... Caitlin Donahue. Uh, her book, her new book is called Weed, Cannabis Culture in the Americas. And uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Danny. What's up, Mike? How's it going today? <laughs> well, it's great to have you on. And, uh, you know, I consider you an expert on particularly South American cannabis uh, and drug, you know, news and things of that nature. Um, you also have a weekly show uh, a weed show in Spanish uh, called Cronica. If I say that correctly, Cronica, that's perfect. That is correct. Um, <laughs> so tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in, in cannabis and then also in uh, South American cannabis. 
Totally. Um, so first of all, thank you for having me on. I'm just thrilled. This is actually the first podcast interview that I'm doing about the book. So I'm super hyped to be on the show. Um, so I grew up on the West coast of the United States, um, mainly in the San Francisco Bay area and which is a place that just has an amazing cannabis history as you both are well aware. Um, I started writing professionally at about cannabis kind of by chance because I was working as the culture editor at a legendary alt-weekly newspaper called the San Francisco Bay Guardian. Uh, my editor came into my office one day and he said, hey, Caitlin, you smoke weed? I was like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I do. He's like, well, guess what? You're going to be the author of our new weekly column about marijuana. It's going to be called Herbwise. And I was like, all right, let's do it. I mean, this was back in the day when it was it was the medicinal area era in California. So my one um, request, my one caveat, if I was if I was going to do this column for them, was that they the paper had to pay for my medicinal marijuana card, which they said yes to, and we were off to the races. I, initially, I thought it was going to be kind of like a goofy stoner culture column, you know, like product reviews, interviews with different creative people about like what cannabis, how cannabis figured in their in their creative practice, things like that. But this was right at the time when the federal government started coming into California and shutting down state legal dispensaries. So quite quickly, it became apparent that if I was going to do the cannabis culture stuff, it did need to be mixed in with a healthy dose of cannabis politics. And I've found that to be true uh, to the current date, you know, 14 years later. So my career as a cannabis writer has always been this mix, I think, of like what cannabis's impact has been on our culture in terms of art, in terms of our personal health, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the cultural zeitgeist, and also what's happening at the political level, what's going on with our legal access to this drug. Um, so about a decade ago, I moved down to Mexico City and started doing this work from this side of the border. Um, and it's just been an incredible education to be able to learn about not just the can cannabis as a drug and plant itself, but also about cannabis prohibition and what that looks like, um, not just within the United States, but also in we're in our neighbors and, and in Latin America. And, um, and my book is basically a product of this incredible international education, just wanting to share it with like the younger people of the United States. Yeah, and it's listed as a as a young adult uh, nonfiction book. Uh, so I'm assuming it's meant for basically uh, high school and college aged uh, youngsters. <laughs> I, I guess I can yeah. say that now. Um, <laughs> <They're totally> <laughs> and and I mean, there's there's certainly a, a focus on the impact of. Uh, prohibition, not just uh, in, in the U.S., obviously, but but even more so the impact in a place like Mexico, uh, Colombia, Brazil, uh, and particularly Mexico, which really pays a tremendous uh, price in blood uh, for our insatiable desire here, you know, in the U.S., um, I think more so for harder drugs, obviously, uh, but but cannabis uh, as well. Uh, and so, you know, I think that anything that you make illegal is going to be that way. Um, and, and, but the impact that it's had uh, on uh, Mexico, Colombia, uh, Bolivia, all of these countries is just 
it's hard for people in the U.S. to really even wrap their mind around, you know, tens of thousands of deaths per year um, caused by uh, drug violence and just all of everything that all the corruption and things that go along with that as well. Um, and you're seeing that firsthand. Um, tell me a little bit about like, you know, what what you learned since moving down to Mexico City a decade ago and 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 being uh, a journalist. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the short answer is so much. Uh, the longer answer is that I think I think the primary thing that I've learned from being a drug reporter who grew up in the United States but who has lived in Mexico for a while now is that the United States and Mexico in a lot of ways for me are the same country living under a really gnarly form of apartheid. And the reason why I say that is because we share so many economies, so many industries span that border, so many people span that border. There's so many people living in the United States and living in Mexico who have um, heritage from the other side of the border. The border itself has moved over the course of history. I think that's something that we don't talk about a lot. You know, like I grew up in California in the Bay Area that, that used to be Mexico, you know. Um, and when it comes to the drug economy, I mean, Y'all, not to date you guys or anything like that, but I think you could probably remember a time when a lot of the marijuana that we consumed in the United States came from Mexico. Uh, and since legalization has started to pop up in different spots in the United States, that relationship has certainly changed, but it has not gone away. Um, there's, if you look at like DA, DEA reports, which is obviously not my favorite uh, source for information, but is useful in some senses, um, you'll see that the amount of cannabis that is crossing from Mexico into the United States, or at least that they're catching, has decreased dramatically, you know. Um, but at the same time, we're also seeing uh, production of like illegal, unlicensed cannabis industry. It, it's not going away. A lot of it is moving up to the United States where it's now easier to produce that. And I, and I do think that we are still seeing not just the participation of people from Mexico, but the participation from people from other countries that are involved with that and are still being um, penalized by that. Because I think it's, you know, when we talk about legalizing weed, I think it is also important to note that legalization usually pertains to certain uses of weed and certain modes of production of weed. So it's not that we're legalizing weed in all sense for all people, right? So people are still going to jail. People are still getting their, their crops taken and things like that. Um, I had to take like a minute to kind of acclimate myself when I came down to Mexico City because I came down here with this like NorCal uh, cannabis mentality, you know, everybody that was cultivating it looked like my dad, like kind of like this older hippie kind of assumption about what cannabis production looked like. Clearly, that is not the case in Mexico. I actually was pretty dumb when I came down here and got myself into some kind of like dicey situations when it came to cannabis reporting. So I actually took a break from weed reporting for a minute for like four years. I kind of focused more on music reporting, on different arts and culture kinds of reporting so that I could get my feet back under me um, and, and be a little bit more conscientious, a little bit more responsible when it came to documenting what's happening with weed in Mexico City. Um, and yeah, I think that like it's kind of... I guess it's maybe for some people who are listening to the show, it might be kind of weird that we're having this conversation about what is a book for teenagers. I mean, Weed, Cannabis Cultures in the Americas, my book is 
it's supposed to be for 14 to 18 year olds. That's who it's marketed for. Um, but the reason for that is I think that our conception of what young people need to know about drugs, cannabis in particular, but all drugs in general, is in need of like a serious update. It can't just be just say no anymore. That's for sure. We need to give kids like more information about what cannabis health means and what like forming a responsible relationship with this plant means as well. But I also think that in like drugs don't just impact us in the sense of our personal consumption of them. They impact our communities in ways that go way beyond that. Um, and I think it's really important that kids understand that when we're talking about drug prohibition, what that means, um, why prohibition laws get put into place, and who they impact, right? So that's what this book is really looking to express to kids. Do you know what I mean? It's not for kids that are looking to smoke weed necessarily, although obviously we know that kids do smoke weed, but it's also for kids who are looking to understand like mm, how these systems impact us and and just to be more aware. Because if we don't teach people about that, I think that we're, we're missing an opportunity to teach kids about what racism is, uh, what classism is. And I just think that drug education could be a great tool for that. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry. And, and yeah, no, 100%. And also, I mean, the stigma uh, surrounding cannabis uh, it, that's when it gets into people's minds is when they're young. Yeah. And uh, so we, we got to get them before, you know, before that uh, works its its way. Do you, do you feel like uh, the church is kind of in some way responsible for that stigma as well? Uh, I, in particular, like the Catholic church, because I think that that's one of the things that seems to always uh, get in the way of, uh, of removing the stigma in Latin America um, is that people are taught by the church that all drugs are bad and they really make no very little differentiation. Do you find that or is that an over-exaggeration? I don't think it's an over-exaggeration. I think that most, there's a lot of organized religions that are like anti-us taking control of the substances that we put into our body. I don't know too much about Catholicism. My dad is a traumatized Catholic, so I didn't spend a lot of time in church when I was growing up. Uh, but what I will say is that in Latin America, the religion could play a part. In the, and I think that like one of the biggest media representations of cannabis that you'll find in uh, mainstream media in Mexico is this show called La Rosa de Guadalupe, which is like this Catholic tinged kind of like uh, morals show. So you'll get these crazy episodes that are about like a mom, a single mom who's struggling to make ends meet and she ends up selling weed brownies and then things like spiral out of control and she ends up going to jail or like a little girl who uh, whose little sister made it into her supply and then had to go to the hospital. Things like that that really like do drum up this kind of um, hysteria around weed. But uh, but like beyond religion, I do think that there's some really real reasons why an anti-cannabis stigma exists in Latin America, because the drug has been associated not because of the fault of cannabis, obviously, or the of the actual planet, the actual cannabis plant or anything like that, but the drug does have an association with extreme amounts of violence. Um, and the reasons for that are very complicated. Um, I think that our perception of what the quote unquote Mexican drug cartels are is 
a little bit erroneous and largely handed down to us um, by, you know, like U.S. government officials and even Mexican government officials. Um, but the fact remains that a lot of people have died in Mexico from this so-called uh, war against drugs. And people know that. So like when I first moved to the when I first moved to Mexico, uh, I was just like walking around being my dumbass white girl hippie self that I am. And I was walking through this neighborhood called Tepito, which is like they call it Barrio Brava. It's like one of the um, it's where like it's like the, the center of like um, bootleg industry in Mexico City. So you can go there and get like any sneaker that you want in bootleg form and also like any other consumer goods but it's also kind of like one of the rougher neighborhoods and there was these kids smoking weed on the street and I was like hey can I hit that and they're like yeah man you can have some and then they actually like left the joint with me and walked away and this little old lady came up to me and she was like what are you doing like get off the street with that like this is dangerous da, 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 da. and in the moment I was like man, this woman is totally brainwashed. Like, what the hell? Like, don't harsh my buzz, man. But then later I was like, no, this woman is reacting to a, a very real history in this country that has to do with the drug economy and violence and people dying and people go and things going haywire around her. So I, I think it's like a little bit like, it's complicated, right? But I don't think it's all Catholicism. I think there was also like large socioeconomic forces at work when we talk about anti-cannabis stigma. Right. So in, in, in the book, you, you even talk about uh, indigenous use, uses of cannabis as well, going back uh, many years. And the book is basically uh, a, a, a bunch of interviews, 17 different interviews with people of all walks of life. Um, and, and when you say the Americas, it includes, uh, you know, Canada, uh, the United States and South America. I recently learned that there is no such thing as Central America. My friend Julio Zanil, who you might know, uh, in Mexico City, told me, Danny, there's there's no Central America. There's just North. And Danny, know, Mexico is in North America. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <clears throat> it's a it's a misconception that I would say nine out of ten or more uh, people living in the United States would make that misconception, or maybe more. Right. I mean, maybe ninety nine out of a hundred, because we've always been taught you know, North America is Canada and the US, then there's Central America, and then there's South America. And that's, you know, on the maps and everything. So it's really, it was interesting not to to be told that, like, it's the Americas, <laughs> you know, it is. And, and even what you said earlier about parts of the US being being Mexico, before, you know, a lot of people I don't think are are, are truly aware of that and, and understand no. that. Um, but, and but they don't the get the United States just to add on to that. They also don't get the United States role in creating the unrest and, and like, like, right. you know, the drug laws in the right. rest of the hemisphere. So the that's demand. another reason why it's real important <laughs> for people to learn about what's going on outside. Yeah, the, country when it comes the to demand, cannabis. the demand for, for, you know, particularly harder drugs uh, is insatiable in, in the U.S. and, and Canada and Europe. I mean, I think Europe is also. Uh, not, you know, slacking in that. Uh, and then the impact, of course, is felt in the places that produce it and traffic it much more harshly, I would imagine. One of the things that runs through these these interviews, because like I said, there's people from all the way from Canada to Argentina, all throughout the Americas being interviewed from all walks of life. Um, but they're all basically talking about harm reduction, reducing the harms associated with drugs, drug use, and drug trafficking, and addiction, um, 
so it's it's very interesting in that way. Uh, and these are kind of personal stories. And the other thing that I notice uh, is people talk a lot about uh, the the consumers or the users' responsibility. And you know, I think that's a very important thing for younger people to understand too. Uh, is you have a responsibility as a conscious consumer uh, to act in a certain way as well, uh, not you know throwing your uh, half used joints on the ground so a dog or kid can pick it up and and you know the the amount of packaging that I see here in New York City uh, discarded on the ground um, that's cannabis related it makes me sad to be honest because uh, I feel like uh, it doesn't send a great message to the people who uh, don't necessarily smoke, uh, but don't necessarily want to see us go to jail either. You know, you know what I mean? Like the average person, Joey Sixpack or whoever, uh, who's just walking down the street uh, and they're seeing, you know, kids smoking, uh, you know, around uh, younger kids and, and parents and things. And, you know, I just think that there's uh, something to be said about um, teaching responsible use and harm reduction at a young age. And I think that's kind of what the heart of this book gets gets into. Yeah, the health part was super. I mean, I think that a large part of this book is like sociological, examining social problems. But of course, um, when it comes to young people and cannabis, the part about our personal health is very important because we all know that many kids are not getting um, good harm reduction. And thank you for using that term. This is definitely a harm reduction book, a harm reduction based drug education in school. So it's really important for me um, to have that piece in there. Um, the book book starts out, well, the first chapter is an interview with Emily Jenkins, who's a University of British Columbia nursing professor. And Emily heads up these massive interview projects where her team will interview just hundreds of young people um, in urban, rural, and suburban environments in Canada um, with the mission of creating educational resources about drugs based on what those kids know and what they want to know. Um, so she's the first interview in the book. And what she's talking about is um, what we know about cannabis's impact on young bodies. Also what we don't know, um, because at the end of the day, and this is something that y'all are well aware of, like cannabis science is has been held back by prohibition for a very, very long time. So we don't have a lot of definitive answers on what this drug, how this drug is going to impact us in the long run. Like we do have some ideas that like there might, it might not be great for young people uh, to be smoking weed every single day. That's probably not a good idea in terms of like their cognitive health and things like that. Um, but there's also a lot that we don't know. So a big part of Emily's um, interview kind of rotates around this concept of a spectrum of use. Um, so the idea that it's not a, whether you're a drug user, which is bad, or whether you're sober, which is good, but how that drug is impacting on your life and really being conscious of, of that instead of trying to gauge your drug health by, ooh, is the substance that I'm consuming legal or illegal? Or am I smoking one or two joints every month? Things like that, that like aren't very exact and can actually like lead us into conclusions that are not correct about our relationship with psychoactive substances, that we're judging our relationships with them based on the impacts that they're having on our lives and on our relationships. So like, for example, a kid who smokes um, one joint every three months, like that's probably not going to be a huge deal in terms about how their bodily health is feeling. But if they're smoking that one joint every three months, right before they have a really big test, it, that's 
mean that might indicate that they do have a problem with cannabis, even though they don't smoke it very much. So, um, yeah, so that's how she talks about, and also about like how, what it's like to start conversations like this with like the older trusted adults in our life, which I think is also a message that we need to be imprinting on young people that they shouldn't be afraid of talking to people who are older than them. Um, and, and asking questions and finding the answers together, because at the end of the day, like we didn't grow up with very good drug education either. So we're all kind of in this, um, together, regardless of how old we are. Yeah, absolutely. And you've divided the book into three sections, um, cannabis and our bodies. Uh, that's the Emily interview. And that's talking a lot about, um, the medicinal aspects of cannabis. Um, and even, uh, as a tool for athletes, you interview Al Harrington, uh, former NBA player. And, we love uh, Al Harrington. Viola entrepreneur. Um, and then the second part is cannabis, cannabis culture, um, having more to do with, uh, uh, hemp, uh, and, and that sort of thing. Um, narco corridos. <laughs> I love that interview as well. And first man, uh, in Jamaica talking about, um, the Rastafari indigenous village and the retreats that they do, uh, down there. And, and the third section, uh, is the fight for drug war justice. And that's the section that really, um, struck me as a reader, uh, because, you know, I really learned a lot about the protest and the movements in these different countries, not just Mexico, but um, Brazil, uh, Argentina, and places that are, are are known for being somewhat more conservative uh, as well. Um, tell me a little bit about that, the fight for drug war justice, in particular, uh, some of these interviews that you have uh, with people uh, in South America. Yeah, totally. Well, first, I just want to say, like, that makes me feel so good, Danny, because you know so much about cannabis. And the, and if, like, this book, like, op like taught you something about this drug, then that is just, like, so cool. So anyways, um, yeah, fight for drug war justice. We've got people from all over. So the section starts out with Mauro Melgar, who is an auto shop owner in L.A., um, but who was incarcerated on felony cannabis charges as a teenager he spent a year in LA County Jail with adults and so he talks about like what it's like to have your life impacted on that level um by the criminal justice system when it comes to cannabis um and then I also have like a bunch of really cool activists like you said from across Latin America um the cultivators I, I, was interesting Miguel Fernandez uh, Miguel Fernandez yeah Miguel <laughs> is like someone that I've known for a long time I met Miguel when he was involved with club cannabis uh, club cannabis so Chipili, which is like the first like public cannabis club um, in Mexico that offered like legal services to um, users and a consumption lounge and medical products, et cetera. Um, Miguel is in there talking about this protest camp that got set up by activists. They took the plaza in front, directly in front of the visitor's entrance to the Mexican Senate, which is on the corner of these two really big streets in Mexico City. Um, and they occupied that plaza there for three years um, with the hopes of visibilizing the fight for cannabis users' rights in Mexico. Um, th that was amazing. And what I loved about that action was that they actually went so far, they had like a cannabis farm. They had like an entire ass a garden of cannabis plants growing there in front of the Senate. So anybody who was walking through, um, walking their dog, walking to work, whatever, they were going to see these big, beautiful, bushy green plants, which is so important in a country where cannabis has been painted as this very like sinister 
again, very, in a real sense, associated with violence kind of um, entity. And I think that just the act of people seeing the plant and understanding that like very literally this is like a leafy green plant. Um, I think that that was so crucial when it comes to like general societal attitudes towards um, marijuana in, in this country. Um, so yeah, so Miguel talks a little bit about what it was like um, to set up that plant. Um, I think what also you're referring to is his backstory because he's part of, I think he's like second generation cannabis worker from Oaxaca. Um, both of his parents were incarcerated um, for, I guess what you would call drug trafficking um, when he was young. So he was like deeply impacted by that same um, carceral system. So he had a real motivation for wanting to be so deeply involved um, with the fight for widening cannabis access in Mexico. Um, there's also some really incredible people like Luana Mayero um, from Brazil. Luana has founded, um, she was also um, kind of forcibly institutionalized as a college student for her cannabis use. Um, her parents didn't have like a super high level of education either. And so they sent her to a facility that was like, um, not great, like had some pretty like major human rights violations going on. So she grew up to become the founder of Renfa, which is a nationwide network of anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-prohibition activists. So mainly Black women who come together to talk about how these systems um, impact us and in particular, how they impact uh, poor women of color. Um, so she's got like a really amazing take in that chapter, we also go into, I, I learned from her that Brazil actually had some of the very first um, anti-cannabis laws in this hemisphere, um, laws that were passed kind of in the same time um, in this era, right after Brazil abolished slavery, they passed a bunch of laws that essentially criminalized being African. So they passed laws against cannabis consumption because really the only people that were consuming recreational cannabis in that time um, were the in, people who had been uh, forcibly removed from Africa and taken to Brazil to, to be enslaved there. Um, they also passed laws against capoeira and the practicing of different um, African religious ceremonies. So she gave a really amazing perspective on how prohibition is and always has been um, a racist act. Um, yeah. And then the last Absolutely. person, I, I want to talk about like all these people, but then there's also, <laughs> I just want to really briefly mention that Ana Alvarez, um, she's from Peru and she's a mom whose kid has a health condition that really benefits from, from cannabis. And so she founded a collective called Buscando Esperanza of other moms and other family members like her who took to the streets um, to protest the lack of cannabis access in their country. And they ended up um, being, I would say, directly responsible for Peru passing its first um, medical marijuana laws. So yeah, some really big names in, in that third section. You're totally right. Amazing. Amazing. Yes. Um, do you know the story of the uh, the summer of the cans in Brazil when the uh, all the cans of weed started washing up in, the, in I think it was 1987 or so? 86 Wait, or 87 no. what is what is uh, this well in the 80s a uh, a ship basically was about to get busted and they offloaded all these cans uh into the water uh and their cans were sealed cans with thai weed in them they weren't wasn't meant for brazil it was meant to go up up the coast probably to the u.s um but they ended up washing ashore and mostly fishermen and surfers were the first people to find them and basically, these cans ended up changing the, the whole culture 
uh, because they, they were, you know, there was a lot of them and they were washing up all up and down the coast uh, and people were just smoking this Thai weed for the first time uh, in Brazil. And it, and it, it's a, it has long lasting uh, repercussions. Very interesting story, but a, a, a story for another time. Um, I love an international relations <laughs> cannabis story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, let people know because the book is out in September, but people can pre-order it now um, through your publisher and let people know how they can order the book and also how they can uh, follow you on social media, your uh, your Chronica show. Uh, I know you were a contributor for years with us at High Times as well. Um, and uh, yeah, just let people know how they can uh, follow you and uh, get the book. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I'm super excited. The book comes out on September 5th through Zest Learner Books. You can pre-order at learnerbooks.com. That's L-E-R-N-E-R books.com. Um, and I'm going to be touring it also. The first like wave of tour dates at this point is like all the way up the West Coast. So like LA, Bay Area, Portland, and then up to Vancouver. We're also going to be stopping in in the Nez Perce reservation um to do an event with one of the book's interviewees mary jane oatman um who is an incredible indigenous cannabis advocate um and eugene organ as well and you can get information about all of that either on my website which is donahue.work or you can find me on instagram at uh birdwatch is my handle that's b-y-r-d watch um or i'm also on twitter at caitlin donahue's so yeah, I would love to connect. And if you're going to be coming out to one of those events, or if you have a community group, school group, drug justice group, um, any of that who are interested in me coming through and, and hosting a conversation about these issues and about how cannabis impacts our lives and our communities, I'm super down to do that. doesn't matter how big the group is. Uh, reach out to me. I'd love to chat with you. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for educating the youth about this because they're the ones uh, that are going to make the change that we, you know, we need, which is global end to prohibition and uh, more of a harm reduction. And we need the countries to work together in their own best interests as well, in, in the best interests of everyone together. Um, and, and so that the United States needs to take responsibility for the, 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 the war on drugs in Mexico and beyond uh, and actually come up with harm reducing solutions so thank you right that um, does not involve it i have to say not, that does not, not involve military. bombing the cartels no, which is not, what the republicans are talking about right no, now not bombing the cartels you nope. know taking away the cartels power uh by legalizing because if tobacco was illegal the cartels would sell tobacco if alcohol was illegal we had that we, we've already seen that happen uh when alcohol was illegal and uh gangs sold alcohol uh, yeah. you have you and know, on a like more basic level too it's like drugs aren't going away you know right. what i mean when have we not used drugs so i think there's also that part that's why the harm reduction part is so important it's just like it's not about eliminating drug use it's not about eliminating the drug triad it's about keeping ourselves safe keeping our communities safe with the reality that drugs are going to be out there yes and also letting the youth uh the young people know the the reality and not just bombarding them with propaganda like just say no um, so thank you so much, Caitlin. Thank you. I appreciate it. And, uh, um, you know, uh, go out there and get this book. It's called Weed, Cannabis Culture in the Americas by author and writer Caitlin Donahue. Um, thanks again for being on the show. No, thanks to you guys. Thanks for having me on, Danny. It's been a pleasure. 
We'll be back after these messages. Hey friends, I just want to let you know that friends don't let friends bring clones home. You don't know what the phenotypes are. You don't know whether there's pests or disease on those clones. The only way to really truly guarantee you're growing the phenotype of choice is through seeds. And the best way to get the seeds you want is through Seeds Here Now. Established way back in 2010, Seeds Here Now has been satisfying customers with the best genetics from the best breeders in the world. Pretty much anyone you want, they've got. With an average rating of 4.8 stars, Seeds Here Now is one of the most trusted and respected seed banks in the world. And Seeds Here Now is the only seed bank with a satisfaction guarantee. Plus, Seeds Here Now offers regular deals on seeds. Just click the On Sale tab on their website to see that month's deals on a variety of incredible genetics. And if you sign up for their email list, you'll be entered to win free seeds every time a Seeds Here Now email goes out. And... Grow Bud Yourself listeners can use the promo code GBY10 for 10% off anything on the site. So check out SeedsHereNow.com and get started on your own dream garden. All right, welcome back. And uh, thank you, of course, to Caitlin Donahue, author of Weed Cannabis Culture in the Americas. Definitely go check that out uh, as soon as it becomes available. Uh, and uh, yeah, we are now in the cultivation segment of the show. And uh, no strain this fortnight, but I do have a grow tip. And my grow tip is going to be dealing with caterpillars. Uh, now, we've we've covered this a little bit before, um, but this is also going to be uh, information from someone who is currently dealing with some caterpillars as well, our old pal. Uh, Craig Coffey, who uh, was the IT guy over at High Times for many years and uh, and intakes on all the cannabis cups and bag and tags and all of that. So uh, I reached out to him just to find out a little bit of information. But first, um, let's talk about how to spot a caterpillar infestation um, and, and what caterpillars are in general. I mean, basically, um, they're larval species. Uh, and they mostly will eat the leaves, uh, the fan leaves. Uh, they, they, there's a lot of different types of caterpillars, but a lot of them will attack cannabis, uh, in particular the fan leaves, but also there's borer, borers, B-O-R-E-Rs. And those are the ones that go into uh, the stem. And these are really bad. I mean, of course, losing pieces of the leaves is bad. Uh, a minor infestation is going to leave holes basically scattered throughout your fan leaves. Uh, but a larger problem really can lead to serious damage and certainly slow down your plant's growth uh, and potentially kill your plants. So uh, there are thousands of different caterpillar species, um, but the uh, the borers are, are really a serious problem uh, for sure. Um, so how do you spot a caterpillar infestation? Um, you're going to see those holes uh, typically on the fan leaves, uh, you know, basically oddly shaped tiny holes in the fan leaves, all kind of in the same area. And that's a sure sign uh, that you've got caterpillars munching on those leaves. Um, stem damage also, the borers will go inside the stems. This is really bad because basically everything above uh, where they do their damage uh, to the stem 
can die and sometimes plants will just fall over at that space where the uh the caterpillar got into the stem um there are also ones that chew up the flowers these are really awful uh, and very bad uh because they actually literally eat your buds um so you've gone through all the trouble of growing flowers and then uh here they go at the base of your developing buds and uh killing off you know whole colas in many cases whole plants um so if you see chewed up flowers um not bud rot but actually eaten eaten flowers um that could be caterpillars for sure um some leaf yellowing you're going to see as well uh that's going to be basically because those stems are damaged the the nutrient and, and water isn't able to get up uh to the parts above that damage um so you'll see yellowing of the leaves stunted growth um and basically sometimes you'll even see the caterpillars um uh, most of the, most of them are are nighttime ones uh, they eat nocturnally so uh you want to maybe get out there with like a flashlight at night uh if they're outdoors uh or in a greenhouse and really uh check them out closely um so I talked to Craig. I asked him, you know, what 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 are your best tips for dealing with caterpillars? Uh, he said, obviously, there's you know some chemical options um, that work, uh, but he stays away from all of those. Uh, again, this is a consumable plant. Uh, he said spinozad uh, is one of them, but he tries to stay away from them. So uh, I asked him for you know some other solutions. Um, he said, if you do use that stuff, just follow the instructions carefully. Uh, don't use that while the plant is flowering. Um, um, and as far as, uh, going out at night, he says, go out, uh, with your, in your, with your plants at night, uh, with a headlamp. Um, this gives you two hands free, not a flashlight, but an actual headlamp. Uh, and you can really get in there and you can see them eating and you can physically pluck them off physical removal of, uh, of the nocturnal caterpillars, um, if you do that a few times a week, that really uh, that really helps. Um, he says they come out to eat at night. Uh, if you can get out there at night without doing too much damage and pull the uh, pull the actual caterpillars off and kill them, uh, that really works well. But you have to do that pretty much a few times a week, two or two to three times a week, uh, to keep that population down. Um, he says that he tried predator wasps, um, the parasitic wasps that you can get uh, the eggs of. Uh, but he also said that it wasn't super effective for him uh, because, it, it, you know, they just had their plants out uh, out of the open and the wasps don't stick around long enough to really do much. You have to constantly put out eggs during the whole growth cycle. So um, the wasp didn't work super effectively. I know some people use praying mantises for this as well. Um, they're pretty good. Uh, if you can if you can get a few praying mantises on your plant, um, they're pretty, pretty good at reducing caterpillar populations for sure. Um, there's also bacterial sprays, including even uh, our sponsor, Prime Superior, uh, that you can use. These are formulas that contain, uh, you know, different bacterial uh, things that that are actually uh, natural pesticides. Um, the bacterial species that that caterpillars don't like, and it can actually harm them. Um, so I would say try that as well. Definitely the Prime Superior. Um, you want to look for also stuff that might contain. Uh, Bacillus thuringiensis. Uh, that's another uh, one specifically that goes after um, caterpillars. Um, he also said that companion planting works pretty well. 
uh, putting geraniums and milkweed around the perimeter of the grow, um, not in the grow, but around the grow. That's uh, that's what he says. Um, he says moths and butterflies prefer laying eggs in those plants, um, and a perimeter will catch some of those inbound egg layers. Uh, the biggest move for him, he says, has been getting uh, a tent. Uh, he hasn't seen a single one inside his tent. It's basically like a, uh, you know, like a three hundred dollar uh, tent uh, greenhouse kind of that you put outside, but it, that helps a lot as well. Um, it's basically a barrier fabric. Uh, if you set up any kind of fabric layer around your crop, it will prevent the caterpillars from physically reaching the crop uh, to feast and also to lay more eggs. Um, and like I said, those beneficial insects can be helpful as well. Uh, I do not recommend neem oil anymore. I used to. Uh, I don't anymore because I just think uh, the the phytochemicals in the neem oil are are they get into the plant and you kind of never get rid of that uh, you know the neem smell uh, and the and I think it certainly affects uh, the flavor and the scent and I can't imagine that it doesn't affect. Uh, the you know the harmful smoking of of neem oil can't can't be healthy, and I do think maybe even that cannabis uh, hypermethes syndrome or whatever that they talk about is actually from concentrated neem oil and not from excess cannabis. But that's a whole other conversation. Anyway, I wanted to give you guys some tips because right now is the time that caterpillars are out there uh, in our outdoor gardens and our greenhouses looking to wreak havoc on our plants. So if you see those telltale holes in the fan leaves. Uh, get to work and get rid of the caterpillars. Uh, yes, excellent. Craig Coffey was a frequent guest on on the old Free Weed Show. He was also, I think, the only person who uh, ever guest hosted the show in your place. So good stuff from Craig, as always. And uh, and now it's time to take some questions from our listeners. And if you have a question, please get in touch with us. Uh, you could email us. That is info at growbudyourself.com. You could also reach us on the socials and all of that stuff. So let's get started. And uh, let's begin here with our old friend, Booby, who writes uh, and strap in. This is kind of a long one. Uh, Danny and Mike, uh, thanks for providing the answers I seek. Uh, you guys are all right. I'm planning to jump on Patreon, uh, one of these fortnights to show my support for GBY. Uh, recently, I was back in NYC being back for the short period of time I was there reminded me how influential the city has been for the adoption of medical and recreational cannabis use in the U.S. In the course of New York legislation and overall landscape of cannabis-related activities, will we ever see it evolve into a market similar to that of California, possibly a better version of the early Prop 215 days? As I push through with building my own brand, uh, these are some thoughts that I've had. Moving forward, I see myself with uh, primary roots established in New York. Being an East Coast native, I feel most at home there. I see my brand being successful by bringing a well-strategized in-house marketing distro network that pairs well with pre-existing legacy growers. To me, this is the focal point of a solution-based approach, assuming the market is ready. In addition to that, I would also like to bring existing and new genetics uh, with me to continue to develop new phenotypes in the desired flavor profile of the current landscape. Outside of passion and the daily grind to keep pushing against the odds, what are some things that a young, mature, newly branded collective can do to establish new relationships? Hope I'm not rambling, but if so, forgive me. Thanks, gents. So 
uh, a lot to unpack there, but but what would you say to Booby? Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, we have come a long way for sure. Uh, New York legislation is among the best that I've seen. Uh, I don't know that it's going to be a better version of the early Prop 215 days. I don't think we can really go back uh, to that kind of uh, landscape. We've, we have a very interesting landscape, to be honest. We have uh, legal and licensed shops open uh, a dozen plus, you know, basically at this point. Uh, but legalization happened over two years ago. So a lot of unlicensed shops have filled the void uh, and come out of, you know, the underground and have storefronts all over the city um, and other other parts of the state. Uh, and basically, it's kind of a little bit of a free for all right now. Um, <clears throat> as more licensed shops open up, I do believe they're going to be cracking down on the unlicensed ones, of course. I mean, it's a no brainer, but the unlicensed ones are making so much money they're just going to be staying in the game until they get shut down and some of them get shut down and open right back up so it's it's actually a really strange time um i would say you know as far as establishing a brand uh you want to align yourself with the 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 community and the culture so i would say you know make sure you're at uh, events where people are gathering to consume cannabis and talk about what's going on uh, make sure you're up to date on uh, what's going on as well. I mean, it's it's definitely worth it uh, to have a lawyer on retainer that that's specifically aware of what's going on in cannabis uh, and someone who's aware of what's going on in Albany as well. Uh, that's really important. And, um, you know, it's going to be tough to compete as well. I mean, that's the other thing is they've given out a lot of licenses recently, the card licenses uh, for people. And at this point, um, all of them have the same plan as you. Uh, so I would say, you know, definitely apply for uh, either the micro cultivation license, uh, the retail license. If you want to have a uh, consumption lounge, that's something you can apply for as well. Uh, but it's difficult and it's a hard road. And having a brand, uh, particularly in New York for the, for the next, you know, five to 10 years, is going to be a struggle uh, because you're there's so much competition, and it's a little bit unfair in some of the ways of of competition because uh, different brands have different you know goals and basically some are licensed, some are unlicensed, uh, and you know pre-existing legacy growers are are at this point already aligned with many of the brands um, that have licenses. So it, it's going to be tough, but I mean. I would say if if you're really, uh, you know, you have that passion and you really want to do it, uh, you can succeed. I just uh, don't want, I want to be realistic about uh, the odds and the options because it's, it is pretty tough right now. Um, if you're not, you know, unlicensed in, in the underground, uh, in which case you still have a, a different level of competition, but on the license side, it's real tough without a lot of money. So uh, good luck. And, uh, you know, let me know if there's anything we can do to help out. Uh, I'm actually looking for opportunities in the, in the, uh, you know, in that world as well. So I'm, I'm out there, uh, you know, talking to some of these brands too, to see what, what I can do, uh, to get out into the, uh, the New York marketplace. So good luck. And, uh, Keep up the great work and, uh, you know, keep your ear to the street because that's really how, how to succeed in New York. All right. There you go. Thank you, Booby. We appreciate the support 
Um, we're running a little long here, so let's just do one more uh, from Jax in Toronto. He writes, hey, guys, love the show. So my crop was coming along fine, and now all of a sudden my leaves are turning yellow, and I don't know what to do. Any advice for this? Uh, I need some help quick. What would you say to Jax? Yeah, so uh, the technical name uh, for your you know reduction of chlorophyll that results in yellow leaves is chlorosis. Uh, and there's a variety of different factors that can cause this. Basically, several different reasons uh, why your pot leaves are turning yellow. Uh, and I'm going to give you a few of them. I just mentioned one, uh, which was caterpillars. Insect damage um, certainly can cause uh, plants to turn yellow uh, and less chlorophyll. Um, one cause is not enough light. Uh, that's that's a, a big one because a lot of times people will just throw a plant uh, in a tent with a, a, a light that's you know five or six feet away at the top of the tent and they think that that plant is getting enough light and it's not. Uh, and that plant is going to start turning yellow. Or if you got a plant outside and it's not in full sun, it's kind of shaded uh, most of the day, um, that's a plant that's also going to potentially um, potentially turn yellow and 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 show those symptoms. Uh, so and and certainly people that put their plant under regular like incandescent lights that are in the house uh, are going to see this very quickly uh, because that's just not the right type of light or nearly enough light. Uh, so the fix for that is increase the amount of light uh, or change the type of light uh, that your plant is getting. And in some cases, that could be just lowering the light, raising the plants. Uh, but in many cases, you may have to just change uh, to a specific grow light, or if they're outdoor plants, uh, make sure they're getting more sunshine. Uh, that's a big one. So uh, there's also over or underwatering uh, can do this as well. Um, so definitely don't want to over or underwater. You want a nice, healthy kind of wet, dry cycle, uh, and that'll that'll keep your plants from going yellow. Uh, another one is a pH imbalance. Uh, this is something I would check before I went into. Uh, you know, an, a nutrient deficiency because nitrogen uh, is one of the things that greens up your plants and a lack of nitrogen will cause them to yellow. So, uh, but first you want to just check if if the pH is in the right scale because you could have that nitrogen there, but it's unavailable to the plant uh, due to acidity or alkalinity on the pH scale. So the first thing I would do is check your pH, make sure um, you're just slightly uh, below uh, neutral. So, you know, neutral is about seven. Uh, and you want to be, uh, you know, 6.2 to 6.5, 6.2 .2 to 6.5 uh, or so in soil, you know, in hydro, you can go a little lower. But um, basically, if you're around 6.5 uh, and your soil pH is is right there and whatever you're, uh, you're adding as a nutrient solution is, is in that range, uh, in that case, then it would not be a pH imbalance and it would be potentially a nitrogen deficiency, uh, which plants use nitrogen a, very, very a lot. Okay, they use it during uh, vegetative stage, but they also need some nitrogen during the flowering stage as well. Um, and it's one of the main nutrients. It's one of the top three, obviously the NPK scale, but it really is the nutrient the nutrient your plant needs the most of, uh, and specifically and particularly during that uh, vegetative stage when the plant is growing more and more leaves. So you can use up the nitrogen pretty quickly, uh, in especially in small containers uh, that have been watered a bunch of times. So in that case, uh, that 
and, and iron deficiency can also cause yellowing leaves, but most likely uh, it's going to be a nitrogen thing. Um, so if everything else is in, in balance, the light, um, the pH, uh, your watering, um, and you're not seeing any kind of insect damage or anything, uh, the most likely culprit is lack of nitrogen. So uh, the fix for that is bump up, some, bump up the nitrogen. Uh, so on an NPK scale, the, the nitrogen is the N, uh, the first number you see on the nutrient bottles. So you want one with a high uh, level of nitrogen. Uh, it'll typically say grow or veg uh, on the uh, label, and you want to mix that uh, as directed with your water and uh, give that to your plants, and you should see them green right up uh, within a few days. Uh, and if so, you just keep uh, keep giving them uh, more nitrogen. Uh, you know, you don't want to overdo it, obviously, but uh, the plants use up a lot of it, so. Uh, keep them happy. It's always better to uh, underfeed than it is to overfeed, as I always say. Um, so, you know, feed lightly, but feed often and make sure your plants are getting enough uh, nitrogen and the leaves are not turning yellow. All right. Very good. Uh, thank you, Jax. Thanks to everybody who wrote in. If you have a question, get in touch with us. The email, as always, is info at growbudyourself.com. How about we take a short recess, come back, and put a bow on it? Let's do it. Hey guys, I want to tell you about one of our favorite sponsors, Excelsior Extracts. Outcast and TOH from Excelsior are incredible people, incredible growers, and they make an amazing product. Their THC-infused pain rub is made by patients for patients, and it provides powerful relief from pain. This product was developed to treat Outcast's chronic pain, and trust me, this is a super potent topical that really works. You can find out more about Excelsior on Instagram at Excelsior Extracts. That's E-X-C-E-L-S-I-O-R-E-X-T-R-A-C-T-S. Uh, DM them there to learn more about their amazing pain rub. And don't forget to tell them that Grow Bud Yourself sent you. Right, welcome back. We are wrapping it up. Want to thank the sponsors, Seeds Here Now, uh, Sweet Leaf Nutrients, Excelsior Extracts, and Prime Superior Inoculant. Uh, Want to thank Caitlin Donahue, uh, and definitely check out her book, Weed: Cannabis Culture in the Americas. Uh, very enlightening, in particular about uh, Central and South America. And uh, want to thank you guys for listening. You guys are great. Thank the Patreon supporters. Uh, the YouTube subscribers, we we finally reached a thousand YouTube subscribers, which is great. Uh, and um, particularly the Patreon supporters, you guys are the ones who put your money where your mouth is. Um, yeah, you get some cool free stuff, but uh, you're also supporting the show. You're helping pay for the bandwidth to put us out there. Um, and the more people we get on there, the more often we can do the show. Um, that's just the flat out truth. Patreon.com slash Danny Danko. So please uh, hop on there. Uh, even if it's the $4 and 20 cents a month, show your support for a show that hopefully has helped you out over the years, uh, as far as your cannabis growing, or even just hanging out, uh, in your grow room or trimming or on the, uh, exercise bike or wherever you listen to the show. Um, if the show has helped you out, please help us out 
uh, by supporting us on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Danny Danko. And you get free stuff when you join up there too. Um, you get nutrients, you get hats, you get a copy of my book signed, you get uh, all kinds of cool stuff. So please uh, sign up if you can. And I want to thank the people that are already signed up and have been uh, for a long time. You guys are great and we truly appreciate it. Um, I want to thank you, Mike, always. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, I think I got it all in there. Shock and Winstrong, um, episode number 118. Let's put it in the books. 